How has the U.S. Supreme Court's decision on Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization affected the advertising and privacy practices related to abortion care? I'm Po Yi, a partner in Manat's advertising, marketing, and media practice, and this is Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. Abortion rights was on the ballot in this year's midterm elections, both literally and figuratively, and it won big. Since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned nearly 50 years of precedent on a woman's right to abortion services in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization in June of this year, millions of Americans, women as well as men, have been alarmed by the swift actions taken by conservative states to ban abortion outright or severely restrict a woman's ability to receive abortion care. This development seems to have really galvanized voters in this year's midterms to act and preserve women's access to abortion services. The result was a resounding success at the polls. Despite the clear will of the vast majority of Americans, getting an abortion, providing abortion care, and even disseminating information about abortion-related services in states where abortion is illegal remains risky for all parties concerned. In today's episode, I am joined by my colleagues in Manat Health, Randy Siegel, and Alice Leiter to discuss the impact of the Dobbs decision on access to information about abortion-related services and the importance of data privacy in protecting women's right to receive abortion care. In particular, we will discuss the effect of the Dobbs decision on the advertising and privacy practices of abortion care providers and organizations that support women's access to abortion-related services. Randy is a seasoned healthcare regulatory and transactional partner with a particular interest and focus on supporting women's healthcare providers navigate complex regulatory issues. Alice specializes in digital health privacy compliance and policy with a particular focus on health data held outside the traditional healthcare system. Randy and Alice, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Poe. Thanks for having us. Randy, you've been closely following state legislative activities related to abortion since the Dobbs decision and have written and spoken extensively on the topic. What is the current status now? Well, Poe, it's hard on a daily basis to keep track of the current status because it's always fluid, and we're even seeing that play out as a result of the midterms, as you mentioned. The current state, because abortion now has been left to state regulators, is a patchwork of various state laws. Currently, there are approximately 13 states that have a full ban on access to abortion or who seriously limit a woman's access to abortion to very limited number of circumstances. There are a number of states that have abortion bans on the books, but are being challenged through the court system and may be currently blocked by the court. So we expect the list of states that are going to ban abortion or severely limit a woman's access to abortion are going to grow as they make their way through the court system. Some of the states that we're currently watching to see what happens are the state of Montana, the state of Idaho, and the state of Indiana, just to name a few. What exactly is banned in these states with full or partial bans? Some of the bans completely ban access to abortion at something like six weeks. Often, many women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. And so this ultimately would be a complete ban on abortion. Others ban abortion a little bit after six weeks, so maybe at eight weeks. Again, a time period where many women are not even aware that they are pregnant. Some, like Alabama, have an all-out ban on abortion. There is no viability or weak exception. 
and there is even no exception in the event of rape or incest. Arkansas has a similarly broad ban on abortion. Do these bans apply to out-of-state conduct as well? Most of these laws are really regulating in-state conduct, so an abortion provided in a state where it is banned. One thing that is quite interesting is that most states, not Georgia, but most states, are actually not criminalizing the receipt of an abortion. So it's not the woman who would be prosecuted for receiving abortion, but they're actually targeting providers, and in some cases, others who are involved in helping that woman access an abortion. There is, of course, a risk that a prosecutor could go outside of the state to prosecute somebody who engaged in some abortion-related conduct in another state. But in general, because it's a criminal statute and U.S. citizens have the right to move across state lines freely, there has to be some sort of nexus between the out-of-state conduct and something that occurred in the state in order for the state to have a right to enforce their laws. Can you give me an example of what that might look like? So if a woman resides in a state that bans an abortion, they seek a telemedicine encounter with an abortion provider who is out of state where they may legally provide an abortion in that state. So let's say this woman travels to New York. They receive one of the abortion pills because she's early enough in her pregnancy. She takes the first pill in New York. You have to take the pills generally four days apart. The woman can't afford to stay in New York for four days. It's a costly trip already if she's traveling from out of state. She goes back to her state and takes the second abortion pill and ultimately fully aborts the fetus in the state where abortion banned. Arguably, because the second pill was ingested in the state where the abortion ban occurred, there is now potentially a nexus between the out-of-state conduct and the in-state prohibitive conduct which could result in the provider in that out-of-state, in theory, being subject to criminal prosecution. Based on your example, getting an abortion out-of-state is much more complex than simply traveling to another state where abortion is legal. It requires an understanding of different gestational stages and advanced planning with some mathematical calculation, not to mention the cost of traveling and time away from work and family. There's a real need for providing accurate information about different types of abortion services and where to get such services to these women, many of whom need a lot of guidance in addition to financial help. But are there risks with providing such information to these women in states where abortion is banned? In most states, they have criminal statutes that include something called aiding and abetting. And this is not uncommon for all criminal statutes, that it's not just the person who committed the crime who can be guilty of the crime, but anyone who aids and abets a person in um, engaging in that crime. And so a person in most of these states that ban an abortion and make it criminal conduct can actually be liable for aiding and abetting that person, even if, for instance, the person um, who actually conducted the abortion or the woman themselves is not committed of a crime. Most of these banned state laws are drafted in a manner that are intentionally broad. And it's not yet clear how these laws will be applied by prosecutors and bounty hunters or how they'll be interpreted in courts, including the scope of aiding and abetting. 
we believe that some of these laws are broad enough to criminalize the provision of financial, logistical, and other types of assistance to women who are using it to access an abortion in state or out of state. What we're not sure is how far this risk really extends. And does it extend or would a prosecutor looking to make a name for themselves argue that it extends to the mere provision of information about accessing an abortion that is legal in another state or providing information around how a woman could obtain support to enable her to access that abortion? And also the impact of this all on advertising providers who do provide abortion in states where it's legal. These concerns are sort of butted up against First Amendment rights, which Poe, I know you are much more of an expert on, but my understanding is that First Amendment rights protect an individual's right to provide factual information. And so it's interesting to see how this is going to play out. And I wouldn't be surprised if ultimately we end up with a case at the Supreme Court debating this very specific issue. Well, immediately following the Dobbs decision, there was a movement by the National Right to Life Committee, as well as others in conservative states, to try to ban advertising of abortion services. But as you said, there are significant First Amendment issues with prohibiting the publication or dissemination of truthful information. It would take another major Supreme Court decision that overturns decades of precedence for states to ban abortion advertising that is not false or misleading. While states may not be able to ban the publication of or access to truthful information about abortion care, I think there are potential privacy concerns with seeking and accessing such information online, which is how most people get their information in the current digital age. There's a digital footprint left by anyone who is seeking information about abortion online, whether by going to a website, doing a Google search, or through an app. And such information could be subject to subpoena in criminal prosecution as well as in civil actions. Randy, what types of data do you think would be of interest to prosecutors on plaintiffs in abortion ban states? And what privacy protections do we currently have with respect to such data? Oh, it's a really good question. And it's really interesting because it's causing a lot of people, obviously women in particular, but individuals more broadly, to think about the types of data that their phone is collecting as it relates to their health. So under the Fourth Amendment, in general, the U.S. Constitution requires that law enforcement obtain a warrant before collecting personal data from you as an individual but it does not typically apply when this information is collected by a third party. And so data that is collected by your phone or through your web browsing about things like where you visited, how close maybe you went to an abortion provider or a place that provides information about abortion using a period tracker, entering other types of sensitive information that you might be searching for in your web browser, now all becomes potentially evidence of a crime, either against you, the individual seeking an abortion, if you're in one of the few states that criminalizes a woman who seeks an abortion, or against a provider or somebody else who aids and abets you in an abortion. And so unfortunately, most of this data that's collected on your phone or through your web browser 
is not otherwise protected from discovery by law enforcement under the Federal Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which protects most healthcare data held by traditional healthcare providers or by any other federal law. What we are seeing, and I think Alice is going to talk more about it, is some patchwork of state laws in states like California, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see New York to follow, that are aiming to provide additional protections to sensitive data that's collected through your phone and web browsing and Facebook and all the other channels that we use to access information. Alice. I know that consumer data protection, especially health-related data, is a passion area for you. Since HIPAA is so limited in scope, what protection exists for non-HIPAA-covered health-related data under existing laws? I love thinking about one of my passion areas being the protection of consumer data. That's absolutely right and identifies me as the nerd that I am. You're correct that HIPAA is increasingly narrow with respect to the health data it covers. As Randy mentioned, it only applies to data that's held by traditional healthcare entities, such as healthcare providers and health plans. But as you've both mentioned, every day there's exponentially more data that's considered health data and highly sensitive health data that's held by commercial apps and web platforms, your wearables. All of those are outside of HIPAA's scope. Now, that's not to say that it's completely unprotected. There is a legal framework to protect health data outside the healthcare system. We are hoping that at some point there will be a comprehensive federal data privacy law, and there are certainly many who've been working on that for years, but we don't have one yet. And that means we're left with the Federal Trade Commission protections. The FTC protects consumers against unfair and deceptive business practices. And then, as you've mentioned, every state has its own set of laws that govern the uses and disclosures of health data. Those are specific in most cases to health data inside the healthcare system. And most of those are more restrictive than HIPAA, especially when it comes to certain categories of sensitive health information such as mental health information or substance abuse data, genetic data, and of course, reproductive health or abortion-related information. But as Randy said, states have become increasingly active on the broader consumer privacy front. We mentioned California. It's one of five states that have taken action to enact comprehensive consumer data privacy laws, many of which are mirrored after California. Uh, the other four states are Colorado, Connecticut, Utah, and Virginia. The only one of those that is currently in effect is the law in California. Virginia will have its effective date of its law coming up soon on January 1st of 2023. Connecticut and Colorado will follow next summer and Utah in the end of next year. So we're making progress. As Randy said, there are a number of states who have legislation like this in the works, and we'll see if recent events motivate those states to move even faster. How do these state consumer data privacy laws in the five states you mentioned differ from HIPAA in protecting health data? They protect data that is more broadly defined. It's personal information or personally identifiable information. HIPAA only applies to protected health information, a very specifically defined term, and it only protects information that is held by covered entities. Those are, again, healthcare providers and health plans most broadly. Um, and these five states ha have laws that apply to data that is held by broader commercial entities. So it's relevant in this topic because when we're talking about 
sensitive health data that is held by a company that's an app company or a web company or a social media platform, those don't count as HIPAA-covered entities. They are outside the scope of HIPAA, so that data is underprotected as we see it. These five states have laws that apply data protections, the ways that it can be used and disclosed to much broader array of companies that would encompass these often web or mobile-based platforms that are holding this highly vulnerable health data. It's interesting to see that in all of the states that have taken this more aggressive action on consumer privacy, abortion is legal. Although in Utah, it is highly restricted and we'll see what happens. The states want to pass an abortion ban. It's been blocked. It's held up in the courts. It's perhaps unsurprising that California which has always been out in the forefront, a a leader in consumer privacy, has also been a leader on protecting access to abortion. And Governor Newsom of California has gone so far as to advertise California's abortion services and abortion access website in states where abortion is illegal. We'll see if other states, especially those that have consumer privacy legislation on the books, follow this lead given California's out in front posture. It will also be interesting to see whether data related specifically to reproductive services will be given specific protection under these broader state consumer privacy laws. As I mentioned before, most states have laws that are specific to the category of sensitive health data. That is not the case in the broad consumer privacy laws in those five states. And so it will be interesting to see as we continue down this uncertain path of post-Dobbs if those laws are amended or the new laws that are coming down the pike call out reproductive health services or abortion-related information specifically in their laws. Alice, you stated earlier there are currently no federal privacy laws protecting health data other than HIPAA, but the FTC has authority to protect against unfair or deceptive acts or practices, or UDAP, which applies to consumer privacy. What is the scope of the FTC's authority related to consumer health privacy? The authority is referred to by us privacy nerds as its Section 5 authority. Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act prohibits unfair or deceptive acts or practices in or affecting commerce. And with respect to commercial data practices at the most basic level, that means that companies must do what they pledge to do based on their terms of service and privacy practices and cannot misrepresent or omit data uses or practices that would mislead the consumer or cause substantial injury to consumers or not prevent a harm that should be reasonably avoidable. I would also note that states often have their own versions of the unfair or deceptive acts or practices laws, and those I think are in a broader array of states than those that have passed comprehensive consumer privacy laws. But this is good news for those of us who care about consumer privacy, which honestly should be all of us. But as I mentioned, since we still don't have a comprehensive federal data privacy law, the FTC is really the only game in town on the federal front when it comes to shoring up these protections. It's really stepped up in recent years. Part of that is because the current head of the FTC, Lena Khan, has a particular focus on and a commitment to consumer privacy. And that's lucky for those of us who are in the health data space, because given the commercial sphere of where so much health data is currently being stored and being used and shared, we're lucky to have this particular timing of an FTC consumer privacy focus. And not only that, in the past couple of years or several years, we've seen the FTC become increasingly active when it comes specifically to consumer health information and sensitive health information. 
and with even some explicit references in recent cases to reproductive health information. And I have to note that it's not only the FTC that has been focusing on and talking about the vulnerability of reproductive health data. In the past several weeks, my two pop culture North stars, Saturday Night Live and Grey's Anatomy, have both had explicit call-outs to the risks inherent of using reproductive health apps. Now, that's not to say that those apps aren't terrific in some cases and don't provide wonderful services, but I think people are paying more attention to the vulnerability of the data that lies within them. Yes, we've certainly been hearing a lot about the lack of adequate protection for consumer health data in the news and, as you pointed out, in pop culture. What are some of the recent enforcement actions that the FTC has taken involving consumer health privacy? The FTC has had two uh, notable cases or actions related to consumer health privacy in the last two years, and they're getting a lot of attention, especially in the wake of the Dobbs decision. In the summer of 2021, the FTC finalized a settlement with a fertility tracking app called Flow Health, which was found to have shared sensitive health data with marketing and analytics firms without user consent. And in the statement after the settlement, the director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection even stated that apps that collect, use, and share sensitive health information can provide valuable services, but consumers need to be able to trust these apps. We are looking closely at whether developers of health apps are keeping their promises and handling sensitive health information responsibly. So that is a pretty strong statement that puts app developers and companies like that on notice that the FTC although it cannot be the nation's policeman when it comes to all of the apps and web-based devices out there, it cannot police them effectively and entirely. They are really watching this space. And I think that's good news for those of us who are concerned about the vulnerability. And then the last one that I'll mention is more recent. The FTC sued a data broker called Kuchava this past summer for selling geolocation data that could be used to track movements of individuals to and from sensitive locations, and reproductive health clinics were specifically mentioned as one of those sensitive locations. So the two of these combined, as I said, really shows that the FTC is watching and that companies with access to or businesses centered around this type of data should be on notice. So abortion providers, organizations that provide information about abortion care, where and how to obtain abortion services, and online platforms that publish or disseminate such information will need to be careful about what data is collected, stored, and shared. And they need to revisit their data policies related to abortion, and that includes app providers. Alice and Randy, before we end this podcast, I'd like to ask each of you to provide a couple of tips for minimizing legal risk for women seeking an abortion, as well as those providing abortion-related services or information about such services. For those who are seeking an abortion, my tips would include turning off all tracking data, except that which is necessary for your phone to work, and to also use secure web browsers when searching for information about abortion, how to obtain an abortion, or even pregnancy tracking information. Because as we've already discussed, unfortunately, all of that information potentially could be used as evidence against you, a provider, or a loved one who may assist you with obtaining an abortion. In addition to the extent that it's feasible, and I recognize that this is challenging, if you leave the state to go seek an abortion where abortion is legal, 
to attempt to ensure that the entire process associated with the abortion is completed in the state where abortion is legal. And if that means that you have to stay another day or two to consume the second pill or to fully abort the fetus to the extent that you financially can do so to make efforts to do so to further insulate yourself and your loved ones and the providers from any sort of allegation of criminal misconduct. From those who are looking to provide information to women who reside in states where abortion is legal, to really read carefully the text of the advertising or other information that you are making available to a person residing in a state where abortion is legal, to make sure that that information is as factual as possible, and that you are not inadvertently promoting engaging in any sort of conduct that would be illegal in that particular state. But instead, you're explaining how a woman may access something legally in another state. If you are a provider or an app or some other organization that's looking to help women access women's health care, including abortion, if you don't need to collect tracking data or information about their clicks, don't track it. It's just one less piece of information you would have to hand over in an investigation. And if you don't have it and you don't need it, there's no reason to collect it and put these women at risk and actually your company at risk potentially for aiding and abetting violation by some overaggressive prosecutor. Great tips. Alice? Yes, I'm going to echo what Randy said in that last point, probably say it a little bit nerdier. Poe, you mentioned that companies may need to revisit privacy practices, and my tip would be to do so, and do so specifically with a lens toward transparency and data minimization. Transparency is key when it comes to consumer trust. Uh, I mentioned before that in some of the recent FTC cases, the issue has really been how do we not violate consumer expectations with what's being done with their data? And so if you can be as transparent as possible with respect to why a particular piece of data is collected, what's going to be done with it, and how long it's going to be stored, that goes a long way towards shoring up consumer trust. Obviously, a huge hugely important imperative when it comes to abortion-seeking women and abortion-related information. And then, as Randy said, minimize, minimize, minimize. Very often, companies over-collect data, and there are business and operational reasons to do so. But now more than ever, the only data that's collected should be the data that is essential to provide the service. So collect as little as possible, only what's needed, and explain clearly in plain terms and an easily accessible place what you're doing with that data, why you need it, how long it's going to be stored, and what the individual rights with respect to that data are. Thank you, Alice and Randy, for diving deeper into the post-op landscape relating to information about abortion care and the impact of the Dobbs decision on data privacy related to abortion services. And thank you listeners for joining us once again for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. To learn more about these issues, please find a recent Manat Health webinar featuring Alice, Randy, and myself, which is available for download now. And as always, feel welcome to reach out with any questions you might have. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. 
The views expressed on the podcast reflect the personal views and opinions of the participants and are not intended to constitute legal advice or counsel under any circumstance. Downloading and listening to this recording do not result in the formation of an attorney-client or other business relationship. You should not act on any information in the podcast without seeking the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction.